Okay, now we're in the midst of a quite unusual sermon series at the moment, are we not? London City Presbyterian Church. Usual form is for us to work through a book of the Bible, kind of sequentially, systematically. That's how we do it. That's how we play the game, isn't it? London City Presbyterian Church. We're not doing that at the moment. We're in the midst of a sermon series where we are considering what it means to be a reformed church. Isn't that right? That we have looked at the foundations of reformed Christianity. That we have then gone into a second block of material where we've looked at the theology of reformed Christianity. Well, today what happens is we go into the third block, the third area eh, of our sermon series where we're going to consider, or begin to consider at least, the practice of a reformed church. The really practical stuff. Not just the theory, but the practice. So that begs a question, doesn't it? Where on earth do we begin? We're talking about the practice of a reformed church. There's a, there's a lot of things there. Where do we begin? Well, John Calvin, who I'm sure you'd agree is probably the most famous of all the reformers, isn't he? John Calvin said this. He said... He would willingly sail the seven seas, should it mean at the end of it he had the opportunity to speak to one lost soul about Jesus. Isn't that great? He would willingly sail round the world if at the end of it he had the opportunity to speak to someone who didn't know Christ and to speak to them about the gospel of God. So, that is where we're going to begin. Today we are going to consider something of the evangelism, the witness, the mission of a reformed church. And instead of us dotting about in scripture like we've done over the last couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to consider mission by looking at that section, that second reading that we had there in chapter 10. So my first thing to ask you is have you got it there? Is your Bible open at Luke chapter 10? If it is... Look with me, first of all, at the calling of mission. Let's notice the calling of missions, shall we? Okay. Right, what, what is this, what we're dealing with here? Well, at this point in Luke's gospel, probably good to know that Jesus is in the very midst, the very heart of his gospel ministry. So he is here traveling from Galilee. He's going up towards Jerusalem. But what he's doing, he is teaching a lot right the way as as he travels up towards Jerusalem, teaching all the time. What is it exactly, though, that we're dealing with? What does he do here, right now, Luke chapter 10? What's this? Well, I'll tell you what, this is how we could play it. If you would do this with me, if you look at verse 1, and what I will do is seek to highlight just a few details, because verse 1 is packed with stuff. So if you look at verse 1 with me, let me just highlight a few here. Have a look at the verse. Notice, first of all, who he sends out. Do you see it? You'd agree with me, would you? It's quite unusual because it's a large group of people, isn't it? In verse 1, it's a large group. In fact, it's kind of almost like a military scene. Some of us will be more familiar with military scenes than, than others in recent times. Um, but it's like a military scene, isn't it? It's like that picture of lots and lots of troops 
seated, gathered before their sort of commanding officer. You know that sort of scene where the commanding officer then gives out the details of their mission. It's kind of like that, isn't it? You've got this large group of people, kind of almost as many as this in here, gathered before the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a large group. Right, next detail to note in verse 1 is how they are to be sent out. Now do you see, isn't it interesting? Look at it in verse 1. They are sent out in pairs. And in a sense, isn't it kind of like Noah's Ark? (laughs) But in reverse... Because what have you got before you? You've got the the ark of salvation. You've got the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is he doing? He's sending out from the ark, from himself, people two by two by two. Do you see it in pit? Now, why is it like that, do you think, friends? Why does he do it in pairs? Yes, surely for company. Yes, for encouragement. But part of it, I think, is legitimacy in the ancient world witness from two people was seen as far more authentic and genuine. So you're with me so far. What have we seen? We've seen who, we've seen how, where do you think we'll go next? Notice in verse 1 what they're supposed to do. Do you see what they're supposed to to do? You should because it's repeated. It's actually repeated. So this is emphasized. These pairs are sent out ahead of the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't they? They're sent out before him. It's kind of like a a John the Baptist type idea, isn't it? They go out preparing the way for the Lord. Do you see what's going on? They're sent out in their twos. They go in as a couple, as a pair, into a town, into a village, and they declare, before Jesus gets to them, they declare the good news of salvation. So there's a lot of details already in verse 1. I'm sure you would agree. See all of that stuff. I think it just leads up to what I find to be the most uh, fascinating element. And it's this. Let me ask you this. Boys and girls, you got to get this, okay? This will test how much you were listening to Mr. Priest when he was doing the reading. How many disciples, boys and girls, were sent out? Me- nice. Some of you might disagree with that because it depends on what translation you've got of your Bible. King James will say 70, but it's 72. Does that mean anything to us? 72 disciples? Get this? In the ancient world, there were thought to be 72 languages throughout the world. There were thought to be 72 princes dotted throughout the world. Now, get this. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament... It was used, you know, at the time. In Genesis chapter 10, there were said to be 72 nations throughout the world. Now, do you see why that is symbolic? Who's writing this just now? Luke. What else does Luke write? He writes the book of Acts. Do you see why he draws your attention here to the number of disciples being sent out? Do you see why? Luke sees this sending out here as a template for the later worldwide mission of the church. Do you see that? He sees this sending out here as a template, almost paradigmatic of that later. Sending out of the people of God where? To the very ends 
of the earth to all 72 nations. And if you see that and you follow it, one of you shudder. Do you shiver? Do you see what God is doing here this morning? God is surely reminding you, Christian friend, of the calling that he has placed upon your life. What is that, friends? What's happened to us in our salvation? You and I have stood before the Lord Jesus Christ and as in Luke chapter 10, we have been commissioned. There is a calling from God placed upon your life. And what is that calling? That you and I are supposed to go out into London, into the world, into our communities and tell them the good news of the salvation of God. So I ask you this very simple question. Christian friends, have you lost sight of your commissioning? Have you lost sight of the calling from God? Have you lost sight of the fact that you and me, we are numbered with the 72? So we see the calling of mission. Second thing we see here is the tragedy of mission. The tragedy of mission. Okay, so we get the picture, I'm sure, do we? Jesus is sending out a group of his disciples. It's not the twelve, it's not the apostles. They've been sent out earlier. It's a different group sending out 72. But before he does that, before they are sent out, what Jesus does is give a scathing assessment of the predicament that they are in and the predicament they face. I would like you to look at it with me, if you would. Look at it in verse 2. Look at the assessment that Jesus gives here. So he says to them, before they go, and these are words, are they not? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. If you would, allow me to try and illustrate that illustration, if you like, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, A few years ago, there was a really famous documentary uh, that was released, uh, I think it was on Netflix, probably, something like that. And it was a a documentary about wine production in France. Uh, So this program, it followed, I think it was the seven main wine families, you know, the seven main wine-making companies, followed them over the course of a year in their attempts to make the best quality wine imaginable, okay? As you can probably imagine, um, a lot of technology in the 21st century goes into winemaking, okay? I mean, it's all about getting that grape at the point where it is ripe and perfect, for, right? So all, all the scientific stuff, you can imagine, all the technology is going into it, and they're following all this technology, and then... What happens? Then it is found that the grape is ripe. You know, the syringe goes in, they do all their testing, and oh, it's the time. So do you know what they do? Truck loads of uh, extra volunteer or extra workers and laborers are all shipped, bust in to the fields, and it's frantic. I mean, it's crazy. Hundreds of people trying to pick the grapes. Why? Because Time's against them. You don't want the grapes to go off. They need to be picked. They need to be picked now. Now, if you've seen this documentary, you will know that there is a moment of high drama. There is a disaster uh, for one of these companies because the grapes are ripe. And what happens? 
truckloads and truckloads of these extra workers. There's a complete mess up. And they are all transported to a different location. So they're transported miles and miles away. And there's this picture in the documentary of the guy, the main guy in the family, the guy who owns his vineyard. And the poor guy is standing in his field and he is absolutely apoplectic. The grapes are all around me. The grapes are ripe. And where are the, the workers? Are nowhere to be seen. Isn't that the scene here? Isn't that the Lord Jesus Christ here in Luke chapter 10? You see that? That before he sends these people out, what does he say to them? What does he confront these 72 with? The truth that there were multitudes in Galilee who could have been told. Multitudes in Galilee that could hear the good news. And what's the problem? There was no one to do the telling. As we look at that, you know where I go, don't you? It's true in Galilee. Where is it also true? Isn't it true today, 21st century in London? Friends, what is the population of our city? What is it? 8 million, something like that. 8.5 million people. What percentage of that do you think today is going to be found in a gospel-proclaiming church? What percentage? I tried to find out this week. It's very difficult. What, 5%? 10%? Do you see what this means? Right now, on our doorstep, over 7 million people who know nothing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are not hearing about Jesus of Nazareth. The harvest is ready. But where are the workers? So what do we do? London City Presbyterian Church. What do we do? Do we moan about this? Do we just criticize other people that there's not evangelistic zeal? Do you know what is beautiful? Do you know what is wonderful? Jesus, in this portion of scripture, tells you exactly what you are to do. Have a look at it in verse 2. And look for these two words. Listen to them. The harvest is ready, is plentiful. The workers are few. And then he says, listen, therefore... Pray, pray that the Lord God would send workers into the fields. So please, if you listen to anything this morning, listen to this. Surely as a congregation, you and I have to obey this instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to pray for willing workers at the ladies' fellowship. And at the house groups, and at the prayer meeting, you know, our Bible studies, and in family worship, dads instill it. And with our spouse, and with our friends, and with all of the children as they gather even in the Sunday school, and in personal and private devotion, what must we do? We have to beg God that he will raise us up. Give us this flavor. Give us this zeal for evangelism. But we also have to pray that God will send to London City Presbyterian Church workers. Because what is it that we know to be true? The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are so few. Third thing. The urgency of mission. The urgency of mission. 
I know that a few in here um, today love to go hill walking. Uh, you do. Um, a few in the congregation like to, on occasion, not all that often, but on occasion, get out of the smog and the filth of London and uh, get out into the fields and go for, or into the hills. Not the fields. It'd be a poor walk, wouldn't it? Out into the hills and go for a good hill walk. Now, as those people would tell us, um, of course, it is important to be ready and prepared for a good hill walk. You don't want to go out into the hills ill-prepared. There's a lot you've got to pack in your bag, alright? We know this, don't we? Well, at this point here, Jesus has commissioned his people, and he has prepared them, assessed the situation. Now what he does is he equips them for the task. And I find it really surprising what he does. Don't you? I would expect to see what my wife does with the kids every morning. You can imagine what it's like, um, you know, the kids are getting ready for school. Catherine loves the kids, so she's, uh, thankfully, <laughs> but uh, sometimes. <laughs> so what, what does she do? She's like, oh, you better take this, and you better take this. Like Their bags are full by the end of it. It's like, oh, you got your gloves? Take a second pair of gloves, it's going to be cool. Take a hat, and there's all this stuff the kids have got. You're packing up the kids with all this sort of stuff to go. Wouldn't you expect that from Jesus? Remember, though, his heart for these people. Like he loves these 72. And he's sending them away from himself in a sense, isn't he? And he's sending them out in pairs. And, and he knows that it's dangerous. You remember the wolves are going to be there. You would expect him to say, oh, and take this. Oh, you better take this. And, and take this. And take this. And take this. And what do you notice in the text? He does the exact opposite. He minimizes. He says, no, you're not going to need that. Not going to need that. And there's two sides to it. So I want you to look at it with me. Look at the start of verse 4. Look at the start of the verse. You'll be familiar with this. We see it elsewhere in the Gospels. Jesus says to them, carry, don't carry a money bag. Not going to need that. Knapsack. Don't take that. Sandals. Don't you see the message? Isn't it a pertinent message for a congregation that meets in the heart of the financial district of London. There is no place for materialism in gospel mission. There isn't. What are we to do having been commanded by God? We are to trust in him for all that we need for this mission. We are, look, we are to look to God. There is, we cannot be slowed down. We cannot be burdened by this constant desire for things and a desire for stuff. But then there's the second element. Look at the end of the verse. Now you might be more unfamiliar with this because it only appears in Luke's gospel. Look at the end of the verse. Jesus says, And greet no one on the road. Now, I know that some of, uh, especially the men in the congregation, quite a few of the men like to regard themselves as being antisocial. <laughs> I'll let you into a little secret that I've discovered as a, as a minister. I didn't know this before. So it's a little secret, a little pastoral secret, that most men despise the after church cup of coffee. <laughs> Most men don't want this. It's it's not something that's in us. We're gonna to have to have a sort of grumpy men's corner in the church where we'll sit I'll be with you and we can sit with our digestive uh, 
And maybe if you fall into that group, maybe you think, oh, this sounds good. <laughs> this idea of, okay, greet no one on the road. Well, you know, these out on mission, we can keep our head down, no small talk needed. This is, this is beautiful. But we've got to be careful that we're reading this correctly. Jesus is not telling the 72 to be rude. What is in view here are formal greetings. Now follow this, the idea that in the ancient world, if you were out on a journey and you met someone, there was this same kind of social convention you had to go through. Like this long, formal, protracted greeting. And what is Jesus saying to the 72? He's saying, just don't bother with it. Forget about it. Why is Jesus saying this to the 72? Because he is stressing here the urgency of gospel mission. Isn't that? He's saying to them, this is so important. Don't faff around. Don't delay. This is everything. And isn't that urgency also highlighted by what Jesus tells them to do when they arrive in the town? Have a look at verse 6 and 7. The boys and girls as well. Have a look at verse 6 and 7. Do you see what happens? They're to arrive in a town, they arrive in a village, and Jesus is saying to them, look, don't waste time trying to find the best accommodation. (laughs) And don't don't you dare dot from house to house to house trying to find the best place to crash. What does he say? Don't waste time on these things. This mission that these people are, this, this is everything, this is urgent, this is essential. And I say to you as a congregation, isn't this true? That whenever we encounter this very familiar theme in scripture of the urgency of gospel mission, don't you and me, don't we all feel in a sense uh, rebuked? The urgency of this? Who here would have the bravery of putting up their hands and saying that at this point in their life they are living as though the plight of the lost in London was an emergency situation. We, we don't live like that, do we? We really don't. So how about this? That we use this moment in here just now, in this sermon, to put a marker in the ground. How about we use this? From this point, we go home and we assess our lives. Let me ask you these questions. Are you so busy in your life just now that the church has become a burden. He's so busy that the idea of Christian witness is very much on the back burner. Is that where you are? You need to be ruthless. You need to cut some things out of your life. Cut some of the stuff out for the kids. Cut cut some of the stuff out from yourself. Focus on the important things. Or what about this? Are you so fixed on material advance? You know that promotion or the new things you're trying to save? So focused on that that you're being weighed down and distracted in gospel mission? Get your priorities straightened out. What about relationally though? Are you fixed on peripheral relationships rather than on the relationships that count? The relationships in here. The relationships with that person that really desperately needs you to spend time with them so that you can share the gospel. Whatever it is that is stopping you serving the Lord Jesus Christ, that needs to be jettisoned because we have one life. And 
We're dying soon. I mean, Billy Graham, I wasn't going to say this, but I am now. Billy Graham passed away this week, and I watched a video. Whatever you think of Billy Graham matters not, really. I watched a video of him uh, preaching to a young group of pastors. And I think he had been asked the question, uh, you know, he's elderly and he's getting on, he's towards the end of his life, and he's asked the question, uh, what is uh, the greatest surprise that you've had throughout your life? The greatest surprise in your whole life, and this is him at the end of his life. And do you know what he said? The greatest surprise is the brevity of life. And he's standing there and saying, if somebody had told me when I was a young man, if I was younger, that life would pass like that, I would never have believed it. But it does. And you see, we have one life. You've got one shot at this, Christian friend. So what is it going to be about? Is it a busyness? Is it materialism? Surely not. Surely we live all for the glory of God while we have time. We see the urgency of mission. And then the last thing is the content of mission, the content of mission. If you keep up with these things, if you've got your finger on the pulse with Christian blogs and Christian books and websites, you know that there's been an inordinate amount of uh, material written just now about the mission of the church. So much stuff has been written about what, what is actually the job of the church? What are we supposed to, what's the task that we've been given by God. So is it, as a lot of people think, that we are to seek the good of the city? So is that the primary, number one job? Is it that we are to help the poor? Yes, we're supposed to do it. But is that the number one thing? Is that the number one job of the church, the mission of the church? Well, it's here, Jesus speaks to that because, yes, he, think of it, commissions the 72. And he says, this is urgent. But what is urgent? What's the mission? Do you see? Have a look. There's two sides to it. They're to go out and heal the sick, like the 12. They're to go out and show mercy. Yes, of course they are. They're to validate their message through signs. It's the second part of it I want you to see. It's verse 9. This is everything. Verse 9. Boys and girls, look at it. Verse 9. What did Jesus want these people to do, these 72? He says, heal the sick. And, next bit, see to them. Stop there. They were to speak. I mean, we, we hear that, preach the gospel and use words if you have to. What nonsense, what rubbish. Jesus sends the 72 out and they are to speak. That this mission, the mission that we are on, is a speaking and preaching and proclamation mission, isn't it? But what were they to say? Look closely at it, please. They were to say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now that's obviously a summary statement. There was obviously more. Than, they didn't just say that one phrase, did they? More to it than that. But you see the essential message these people had to bring. They had to go into a town and they had to go into a village and they had to declare that Jesus Christ was coming soon. Isn't that it? That they had to go into the village square perhaps, go and speak to people and say the Lord Jesus Christ will soon be here. 
that now is the time for people to repent. Now is the time to look to God for forgiveness because just coming after us as a pair is coming the Lord Jesus. The Jesus of Nazareth is coming soon. And if you see that, and if you're listening to me this morning, what do you also, what do you marvel at? Isn't it this, the, the truth that, that is the same message that you've got and I've got today. What are we to do as a church, London City Presbyterian Church? What is our mission that we're on? We are to go into London and to go into your community and we are to declare this, that Christ is coming and he is coming soon. Isn't that it? Isn't that our message? That we go and tell people that now must be the day of salvation. Now is the time. Now is your opportunity for eternal life. Now is your opportunity. You must repent. You must look to God for forgiveness. Because what? Jesus Christ is coming back and he's coming soon. And so allow me to end this morning. I've spoken to Christians today. Allow me to end by speaking to those in here who are not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you are in here. I know there are people here today who are living in hostility with God. Listen, please, I beg you. Jesus Christ warns you in this portion of Scripture that it is a catastrophic thing to reject the message of his church. He says that it will be for you unbearable if you continue to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, really, what are you going to do? Like, you surely know this, do you? If you're not a Christian, you know in your heart today that all is not well. Like, you know today that you are living in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord your God. And yet despite that, despite that hostility you show towards God, what is God doing this Sunday morning of February? What's he doing? He's extending to you an offer of forgiveness and everlasting life. What are you going to do? You're going to continue to reject God? No. Don't you seize it? I mean, don't you bow, don't you repeat, don't you grab with both hands this everlasting peace on offer in the gospel? Friends, Christian friends, surely we go from this place today and we resolve to fundamentally reassess the way that we are living. Is London City Presbyterian Church a reformed church? Is it? Theoretically? Is it practically? If so, let us comprehensively embrace the commission that we have. What are we going to do, Christian friends? Aren't we going to go out into the fields? And aren't we going to reap a harvest? Let's pray. Gracious God, never more so than when we are confronted with the task of evangelism are we more grateful that it is a work fundamentally of God. We thank you so much that it is the Holy Spirit that goes before us in the task of mission. But we pray, Lord, for 
uh, your forgiveness. We know that we have prioritized and are prioritizing all manner of things over this great commission that you have granted your church. So we pray that you would raise us up. We pray, Lord God, that you would send workers to us. And we pray that we would be willing laborers for the grace and the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.